0: When it comes to investing, retirement and legacy planning, the decisions you make today can greatly impact the quality of life for both you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight, unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your financial future. Good news. you found the Growing Your Wealth radio show with Brian Evans. Brian is the founder of Madrona Financial Services, and with his background as a CPA, he brings a unique perspective to the investment and financial planning world. So get ready for an hour full of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Welcome to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans.
1: Thank you so much and welcome to Growing Your Wealth, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to invest better, live better, retire better, and give better. My name's Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions. But the words of wisdom and solid advice come from the expert Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. How you doing today, Brian? Doing
2: great. Thanks, Jeff.
1: Glad to hear it, Brian. As always, hope our listeners are doing well today, too. Thank you for joining us on today's edition of Growing Your Wealth. We have another fine show lined up for you today. We're going to be talking about selecting an entity structure for your business. If you're a small business owner, that's a decision that you'll need to make. Also, required minimum distributions. We call those RMDs. We'll talk about that. Also, a big question that we get frequently here at Madrona Financial is should we pay off our mortgages? Well, it's an individual and a personal decision. We'll discuss the pros and cons of that, but I want to start off today, Brian, with timing the market. You know, a lot of investors believe that there is a way to time the markets, and this has never been perfected, but if you listen to those commercials for those people who run those classes, they think you can do it every time.
2: Yeah, I I hear people on the radio or you read about on the internet about, you know, they know when to buy, when to sell, and all that stuff. And, you know, if that were the case, uh, they would be the richest people in the world. (laughs) Because if you could find a way to do that... Clearly, I mean, you know, even the old adage: you take a penny and you you double it every day for a month. I don't remember how many hundreds of millions of dollars you end up with. But if you're thirty for thirty making decisions on the direction of something, you know, you're you're gonna you're gonna make a lot of money. Yeah, timing the market. Nobody has ever perfected that. There's no strategy out there that uh, says, yeah, this is how it's going to work. One of the things I I mentioned about that we were talking about that before we started here was uh, timing the market. Work- works until it doesn't mm-hmm. so certainly if you're trying to time the market since 2008 uh, if you're out of the market that was probably a mistake because the market kind of mostly just went up during the the time period you know for for over 10 years there that it's just going up so what are you timing if it's if it's going one direction now there there haven't been a lot of choppy choppy markets to time anyway i mean there there certainly markets are always choppy to some degree but we had big drops in you know dot com 911 early 2000s we had the big drop in 08 and then we have long term trends that that are are not as choppy as one might think they they are so i don't know timing the market uh i get asked that a lot uh, gee, are you going to buy low and sell high on the markets? I'm like, well, <laughs> uh, how would I exactly would I do that? I don't know what the market's going to do next Tuesday. How am I going to know what it's going to do a year from Tuesday? It's, it's not something we can do. We just have to make decisions on how we want to invest
1: long term. So Brian, you mentioned trends there. Is that something that you can use to maybe allocate money to maybe, you know, markets that have more growth potential than others?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think timing the overall market, where I say that's really difficult to do, sometimes, you know, you can do uh, versions, you know, first cousins of timing, we'll call it. Uh, that might involve saying, well, I, I believe that the U.S. is better positioned than Europe and Japan and China. So I'm going to overweight the U.S., Over the averages, or I don't believe bonds are going to produce the returns they have in the past because interest rates are so low. So I'm going to find alternatives to the bond market. And a third thing you you might think to yourself is there are certain areas of the economy I think will do better going forward, like maybe technology or infrastructure or whatever you think it is. And I'm gonna allocate more money to those sectors than I would maybe to oil and gas or or something else you don't think will do as well. So those are those are many versions of timing. That's more valuation and expectations as opposed to just the random timing of the ups and downs of the overall market.
1: When I think of timing the market, I get the visual image of a fellow sitting there and he's buying stock or he's buying equities in the morning, he's selling them in the afternoon, and this is what he does five days a week. If you are investing in in the market is there a minimum amount of time that you should consider holding things reasonably
2: well yeah that's day trading what you described and uh day trading reminds me of of gambling in a couple of ways one is they are kind of gambling and the other one is if you talk to a gambler so how was your trip to vegas oh i i won five thousand dollars yeah, well, how much did you lose? Oh, that part. Yeah, yeah, I lost 6000 <laughs> yeah. after I made the five. You know, it's it's like, well, you remember the wins, but you never hear about the losses. And, and if day trading were effective, I remember, you know, we all do. Everybody listening remembers that. That was a craze for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. Everybody's doing day trading. Everybody's going to these day trading seminars. You pay your... Ten thousand dollars, twenty thousand dollars, learn how to day trade, or fifty thousand. I met a guy that said, he said he spent over a hundred thousand day trading, wow. and he did he did turn a portfolio into a million dollars. But literally, I'm not kidding. He started with three million, <laughs> so it was his mother's portfolio, and he started yeah. with three, and ended up at one. He says Terrible. he says to me, he finally says, you know, maybe, and this this is really indicative here. He said, maybe I should stop doing this. I'm not good at it. But, you know, I
1: just can't stop
2: myself. Yeah.
1: Does that remind you of a gambling addiction? It does. It's sort of like an addiction. As you said, there's that adrenaline rush. And, you know, it's like, you know, playing the lottery to a certain extent. There's that what if factor. Well, the other thing about that
2: is that, you know, I mentioned the day trading. and I mean, remember, it was really popular. Well, if it worked, wouldn't it still be as popular? Yeah. I, I don't even think I hear about that in no. stuff anymore. And so evidently it didn't work because it's not designed to work long-term. So if you're gonna invest in the market, I I have a, almost a trick question on our questionnaire. Mm-hmm. Say, so how long do you intend to keep the money invested? Uh, zero to three years and then other things. And if they mark zero to three, I go, okay, we're probably not gonna to work together. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have at least a three-year time frame on your money, how in the world can, you know, I don't know what the market's gonna do in three years. It could be way down, it could be way up. Um, generally, it's up, you know, most markets, but depending on what your market is, of course. But uh, if you don't have a long-term investment horizon, we're probably not the best fit for you because we're not gonna be able to day trade or short-term time any market.
1: So in our opinion, timing the market, day trading, not good strategies, but What about someone who just wants to mirror the market? Is that a good strategy? What is that all about? Well, that's a great
2: question because, uh, I think you know we have many different markets because we did a show on this. And that's, what is the market? Is the market the average of how people invest globally, which would be heavy in bonds and, and you'd have developed foreign markets and emerging markets and U.S. and, and, and everything in your portfolio? Or is your market the S&P 500, which is only large cap U.S. stocks? Well, that's a subset of the market, I think. What is the market? So defining that's difficult. But, yeah, as far as if you decided you want to be in something, you want to be in large cap U.S. stocks or mm-hmm. you want to be in uh, infrastructure stocks, you know, you can buy an ETF or a mutual fund that, that does exactly that. And so that that is one way to do that. You can overweight areas you think will do better. Uh, long-term. I don't think, again, you can predict necessarily very short-term movements in any of these, but certainly long-term movements you might feel more confident
1: to do. Brian, when you're building an investment portfolio and you're figuring out the allocation for your client's is the biggest asset class in the world. I mean, does that always make sense?
2: Thanks for the lead in there. Uh, you no, know, bonds being the biggest asset right. class in the world may not make uh, the most amount of sense for, for a lot of people. Uh, bonds don't have uh, upside potential that other areas of the market do. And certainly they don't when rates are an all-time low because for bonds to go up in value more than their interest rate uh, that they pay out, uh, interest rates have to drop on, on other bonds. So, uh, I don't see a lot of that, uh, in prognosis. You know, here I am timing the market. I'm timing the bond market. I'm saying, mm-hmm. well, personally, I don't see, th- Uh, a big upside there. So I would personally, a long-term time that maybe I don't want to have a heavy allocation of bonds. And the other areas of the investment world are equities, stocks. Uh, It could be cash and cash equivalents. It could be real investment real estate, passive or active. Uh, Life insurance as an asset class, uh, fixed index annuities. These are all different areas of the broad markets that can be used. And then within those, you can be more sniper-like. Like if I like, okay, I want X amount in, in stock market equities, but I want to overweight again areas I mentioned before. Let's throw them out like technology and, and infrastructure, whatever you want to overweight. You can do that once you've selected how much you feel is right to have in that particular area as a percentage of your portfolio.
1: Well, Brian, it would seem to me that if the bond market is not that good, it is the largest market in the world. Why is it the largest market in the world? And if it's not that good or not good at all, why would people consider investing in the bond market? Why do they still do it?
2: Well, none of us have a crystal ball, so we can't say whether it's good or bad. You know, I could be wrong. I could, you know, Interest rates could go to negative like they did in Germany and Switzerland, mm-hmm. and bonds will rally, and, and, and I'd have egg on my face if I said bonds aren't a place to be. We don't know. But what we do when we look at allocations, we have to say, okay, what's right for me? What's right for us? And that's why investing is kind of a customized process. Uh, Personally, uh, I'm... I believe in markets long-term, I believe in long-term investing. I, I feel like I have a sense of of uh, good places to put my money. Certainly, that's what I do for a living. So I personally would not put my money into bonds, but somebody else might have a whole different outlook on things and they they wanna have that. So uh, I'm just saying we, we have to look at each area. And I would say uh, on the bond discussion, relative to 20 years ago or 30 years ago, I can definitely say bonds are not looking as attractive because rates are lower. That's just just, uh, a truism there. And so uh, with rates being low, bonds uh, don't have the upside potential they had when rates were high.
1: So, Brian, we know the portfolios are not just one mix of things. Let's talk about the overall mix and what that should be. Yeah,
2: one of the ways I like to look at uh, putting together a portfolio for someone is to just start with that, that overarching question is, do you have a sense of how much of your overall portfolio you're comfortable with in the stock market? And that's a great starting point because some people, you know, they, they may not know, but some people do. And a lot of people do. They they might say, "Well, I don't trust the market. I don't like it. I don't really want very much in it." Or gee, I've been very successful at it. I would think a line share of it should be. Or, uh, gee, can I have something you know, too hot, too cold? Can I have something in between? I'm like, okay, well, that's a, that gives me a sense as we as we talk through the pros and cons and their history and so forth as to where the, the stock market equity portion might fit. And a lot of people, you know, if you go to most advisors in the world, they're, they're going to say, you know, 40 to 60%, depending on your age, is often what I hear. Those are kind of just kind of norms that that a lot of uh, advisors follow. So let's let's say that you've determined, okay, I want half my money in equities, but the other half, I don't want to take as much risk with. Okay, well, now we're looking at passive real estate, life insurance, uh, cash, cash equivalents, annuities, and bonds. And so then we can start, you know, once you start filling in the percentages for that, how much do you want in safe money? Oh, uh, 20%. Okay, well, that's probably the annuity aspect. Uh, we want maybe, you know, let's say there was 10% in real estate 10% life insurance, you want 5% cash, you know, whatever that is, That the, the remaining might go to bonds. And so we can start working towards a good solution. Then we might look at it and go, Oh, I think I want more in stock or, oh, gee, that looks like too much. That's half. I, I don't want half in stocks. I, can we make it a third? Sure. And we can just start moving things around until you get the right allocation. But then the, the work for, for an advisor is once that allocation is established, we need to figure out where to put it because any one of those areas has a, a huge amount of choices, just an unlimited amount of choices as to how to place it. So that's where some of the, a lot of the design work would happen.
1: You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. If you have questions about our discussion today on timing the market, of course, you can always call them in to 844-MADRONA or you can email them to us from madronafinancial.com. And if you have at least $500,000 or more to invest, you're looking to hire a new financial advisor and you would like a complimentary no-cost, no-obligation financial review, Call 844-MADRONA or request it online at madronafinancial.com. Time for a break on our radio program today. When we come back, we'll be talking about selecting an entity structure for your business and more when Growing Your Wealth continues right after this.
2: This is Brian Evans from Madrona Financial, and I'm here to tell you that issues with your estate could be a major headache but can be easily avoided. Call us for a retirement readiness review at 844-MADRONA, and we'll discuss your current estate plan. The last thing that you want is your estate to go to the government, a trustee, or to people you don't even know. What about the stress of being executor when you don't know what was desired or where assets are? And in the end, there may not be a whole lot left over, and there's a good chance that it will cause bad blood among your family. What would happen to your assets if your spouse remarries after you pass? What about your kids, their spouses, and your grandkids? You've earned it, saved it, and now it's time to protect it. And we'll make it easy to give you the guidance you need. Call Madrona Financial today for a free retirement readiness and estate plan review. Our number is 844-MADRONA. That's 844-M-A-D-R-O-N-A. Or visit us online at madronafinancial.com. That's madronafinancial.com. Tired of getting only half the story? We've got you covered with the
0: most comprehensive financial information on the radio. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with your
2: host, Brian Evans. Now, here's Brian. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. And in this segment, we'll be talking about selecting an entity structure for your business.
1: And Brian, when you're starting a business, there are a lot of different entity types to choose from. You can have a C corporation, an S corporation, an LLC, an LLC selecting S corporation status. There are partnerships and sole proprietorships. So it is a big decision to make and there are pros and cons to each of those. So let's start off, Brian, with the big question what is the main factor that you want to consider when deciding what structure your business should be? Yeah, well, I think taxes
2: are a big factor in, in every uh, financial decision. And and the reason that we're talking about this topic today is I just looked this up last night, Jeff, uh, okay. there are six million small businesses in the United States owned by five or fewer people that wow. employ people. And I also recently read that 500,000 new businesses were created in COVID, which is one of the reasons why a lot of people aren't going back to their job because they created their own. They they started their own business. So that tells me 500,000 people that don't do this for a living had to decide which entity structure to pick when they set up their business. And that's why I think it's really important for us to talk about.
1: And Brian, I mean, hats off to those people who have started their businesses. I think small businesses are the backbone of America. We wish them much, much success. So let's start with each of these business structures. We'll start with the C Corporation. We've all heard about those. Who is a C Corporation best for. Well, C-corporations are required when you're
2: big, when you're a big company. So every publicly traded company is a C-corporation. And so there are certain rules. I won't get into the weeds on, on this segment. But once you hit a certain size, and and the big disadvantage of a C-corporation is double tax. So let's say a C-corporation made a profit of a million dollars. They're going to pay income tax on that profit. And then when the shareholders want a distribution, after paying that income tax, that's going to be taxed too as a dividend distribution. So it's taxed at the corporate level and at the individual level before it gets into somebody's pocket. So that's the reason not to do a C-corporation. Certainly, uh, if you're building a business and you need to build inventory and so forth over time, their rates are lower than individual rates very often. So if you don't mind paying more in tax in the long haul because you need to pay less in the, in the early years, sometimes that could be a, a decent choice for you.
1: So Brian, is there an earnings threat- threshold, a cash flow threshold or an employee threshold, which would point you towards a C corporation?
2: Yeah. Again, I probably wouldn't recommend one for anybody unless they were required to. So uh, that's why uh, we have something called an S corporation. An S corporation has a limit to the number of shareholders. Uh, it it is, acts similarly to a C corporation, but the big difference with the S corporation is that there is no corporate tax at the entity level. So in my example, if the S corporation made a million dollars, it does not pay income tax on that. It just reports it to the shareholders. The shareholders would then pay tax on that at the individual level as it's earned by the corporation.
1: So when I hear the term shareholders, and you know you've got an S corporation, do there have to be a lot of shareholders? Can there just be one shareholder? Yeah, there can just be one shareholder. That's fine
2: too. So generally, in a, in the case of an S corporation, if there's just one shareholder, and let's say it's an attorney and he works by himself or whatever, he has to pay himself a what's called a reasonable salary. And then any additional income that is earned by the S corporation could be distributed to that person outside of salary. And the reason that's important is, you know, let's say that the person made $200,000 and paid himself a $120,000 salary. Well, 120000 is going to be subject to Medicare and Social Security tax times two because he's both the employer and the employee. But the other 80000 he earned is not subject to both halves of Social Security and Medicare because that's investment earnings. So what he even calls it can be having have a a very big difference in the tax effect.
1: So the other 80,000, I mean, he could be plowing that back into his business. And I mean, I think that's something a lot of people do is continue to feed their businesses. Let's talk about an LLC, a limited liability corporation. What is that? How does it differ from the S corp?
2: Yeah, the LLC was designed to kind of be the best of all worlds. I mean, that was initially what it came out with. Now, all of these can have advantages and disadvantages, but LLCs tend to be what a lot of smaller businesses pick because there is limited liability. That's the L. LL limited liability company, mm-hmm. and so you know it's it's important to have that protection, and and that is one commonality of the corporation structure. Whether it's a C corp, S corp, or LLC, there is limited liability afforded, unless you're in certain industries such as mine. Accountants don't have limited liability uh, for whatever reason. Uh, attorneys, doctors different uh, people like that don't have limited liability. And uh, so they don't have the same protections that other folks do. But uh, LLCs, again, are a very common choice for a lot of small businesses because of the protections they afford. They also do not pay an entity level tax. But if if you don't make any elections, you may be paying Social Security and Medicare on all of your earnings.
1: And I've heard people who say, well, I've got an LLC electing S-corp status. They seem to have a combination of the both of those. What does that mean? Yeah, well, that's that's where
2: you are taking advantage of the LLC structure. But as I mentioned, you might be giving up Social Security and Medicare tax well, by t- being taxed as an S-Corp, you can have that bifurcation of your earnings between what you pay yourself in wages and what you take out as investment earnings and not pay as much Social Security and Medicare. So that's a way to uh, reduce that. Again, you know, I can't get into the weeds and all the gazillion court cases on what is reasonable salary and what isn't and uh, on and on and on. But just uh, just wanted to point out there that is one of the options to be uh, an LLC electing S-Corp status for income tax filing purposes only.
1: I've heard that LLCs are pass through entities. What is a pass through entity? What does that mean?
2: Yeah, that means that you're not paying tax at the at the entity level. So the only one of the the ones we're going to talk about here, the only entity that pays income tax is a C Corp. Okay. All the other ones are passed through S-Corp LLC's partnerships and and sole props, essentially. Uh, but the other ones, well, actually not sole props. We'll kick that one out okay. uh, because it's not an entity. So the S-Corp LLC partnerships are entities that file a tax return, but there is not a tax owing line on those because they're passing that through the earnings, your share of the earnings through to you on a Schedule K-1 that you include on your Form 1040.
1: So let's talk about the next one, Brian, and that would be a partnership. That's interesting. So you and a number of partners have a business here. You're not a sole proprietor. You're not an S Corp, an LLC. What are you? What is a partnership?
2: Yeah, there's different kinds of partnerships. And again, I, I could spend weeks on this topic. You know, there's general partnerships, limited partnerships. Sometimes they they can come into play. Like, let's say that somebody that owns an, an asset uh, or a business or whatever, and puts it into a partnership, a limited partnership, there's always a general partner that assumes liability and makes the decisions. The limited partners don't have a vote, but that might come in uh, you know, say, well why would I want that? Well, it might come in handy if you're trying to gift shares to your children over the years and you want to gift them value to get it out of your estate over time, but you don't want them to necessarily control anything. So I mean you, you might set up one of these things and you own 1% at the end and they own 99 and they say, well, we want money and you say, okay, well, let's take a vote. But dad, our, our votes don't count. Yep, I have the only vote that counts and I vote no. So my 1% controls 100% of the voting. Great, because you're the general partner. And so it's, it's a way, you know, again, there's nuances to all these different things that may need to be considered uh, as you're thinking about setting things up.
1: Final one is sole proprietor. And a lot of folks out there are sole proprietors. So let's talk about that. What a sole proprietor is. What are the obligations? Yeah, as a sole proprietor, you know, if you're starting a business and you
2: just decide to start working and someone's paying you, you don't have to file anything. You've started a business. I mean, you, you should, you know, you should get with the taxing authorities and all of that. But, uh, your business is started, uh, whether you know it or not. And the default is a sole proprietorship. So that's schedule C of your Form 1040. So if you do some work for somebody and they pay you and and you have some expenses you want to take and you go, oh, where do I report this? And well, on Schedule C, unless you create a partnership LLC, S Corp, or C Corp. So... That's the default. Some of the positive of that is it's easy. The negative is that you have unlimited liability. So you make Mm -hmm. make sure your insurances are in place that you need for that. That can be a a negative. But as I mentioned, it's easy. And a lot of people, though, you know, their first year in, boy, I had this great year. I I made you know a hundred thousand dollars, and where is it? Well, I spent it. You know, I got this new car and all this stuff, and, (laughs) and well. Did uh, anybody mention both halves of Social Security and Medicare tax on top of your income tax? And now you've got about a forty-two percent tax bill on oh. your hundred thousand, and now you're forty-two thousand in the hole. <laughs> and we just and we run your return. It's it's April now, so you're four months into the new year, and the new year uh, adds another fifteen thousand. That so now you're about sixty-three uh, thousand in the hole or whatever, and you're going to spend the rest of your year just making the money living on you know top ramen just to pay the tax for the. Two two years. So plan ahead. Understand the taxes. You make money and you spend it. The taxes on sole proprietors can be pretty high because the income tax and Medicare and
1: Social Security times too, because you're employer and employee. So sole proprietorship, you certainly have some more tax obligations there too. What about tax deductions? I mean, are there things that you can deduct as an LLC or an S Corp that you can't deduct as a sole proprietor?
2: Well, no, the, the deductions should be similar uh, across the board. But the reason we have these is because if you didn't, if you just said, well, I got paid as a consultant, I'm just going to put consulting income on my miscellaneous income line in my tax return. Well, did you have any expenses? Well, well, yeah, I had to make some airplane flights and hotel and take people out. And I had to buy a computer and I had to do this, that and the other. Well, wouldn't you like to take those off? Well, yeah, I don't know how. Well, at least put them on Schedule C. You can... Put the consulting income on there, but then now you can deduct expenses against it. So that's the point of filling out the Schedule C is so proprietor. If you don't even do that, I guess you could skip that step, like I say, and just show your income as as miscellaneous income. But most people have expenses related to any uh, business income that they make.
1: If you're a sole proprietor, Brian, I mean, you have the option certainly of, you know, deducting those expenses. But if those expenses do not total $25,000 for a married couple, I mean, that's what the standard deduction is, right?
2: Ah, good question. So this uh, Schedule C doesn't have that standard. Oh. that's an itemized deduction, different kind of deduction. Okay. So, with a sole proprietor, you might, uh, maybe, you know, you're you're doing some freelance work and you made ten thousand dollars, and you had three thousand dollars of equipment you had to buy to, to get there. Well, you would you would deduct that that three thousand against the ten and only pay tax on seven. Okay. So this this does not have any limitations. That's a great question. This does not have any limitations when you're putting that on your on your tax return.
1: Thanks for setting me straight on that one, Brian. Uh, You can deduct those on Schedule C. If you've got questions about a business structure for your business, again, 844-MADRONA is the number to call. If you'd like a no-cost, no-obligation financial review and you've got $500,000 or more, you're looking to hire a new financial advisor or you don't have an advisor, you're looking to put together a plan for yourself. Again, that number, 844-MADRONA. You can always find out more about the firm and find out more about the things we've talked about online at madronafinancial.com. madronafinancial.com. Com. Time for a break here on Growing Your Wealth. Brian, when we come back, we're going to be talking about the good old RMDs, required minimum distributions, and more when our show continues after this. When you're researching something, weeding through all the available information can be daunting, especially when it concerns your retirement. What you want is a thorough analysis from an expert. Good news. Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services has done that for you in his recently published ebook series, Inside Retirement Investing, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. You can get your free copy by calling 844-MADRONA today or visit madronafinancial.com to download your free copy. The Inside Retirement Investing eBook series covers everything from the basics of retirement planning to investing to taxes and so much more. Call now to secure your free copy. 844 Madrona. Madrona Financial Services provides a one stop integrated approach to retirement planning. Schedule a complimentary no-obligation financial review to get on the path to achieving your retirement goals and get your free copy of the Inside Retirement Investing eBooks by calling 844-MADRONA or by visiting madronafinancial.com.
2: Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about required minimum distributions.
1: And Brian, the IRS requires owners of qualified accounts, such as IRAs, to move a certain percentage out of these accounts so that they can be taxed as income. Those are called required minimum distributions. So overall, what is an RMD and why should we be concerned with that?
2: Yeah, it used to be at age 70 and a half. I never figured out where they came up with the half, <laughs> half right? But uh, uh, when you turned age 70 and a half, there were rules that said, okay, now you got to start pulling money out of your IRAs and putting it into your non-IRA accounts. And now the rules have been changed. Now it's age 72 that you're required to do that. And why is that? Well, the IRS wants to tax you on money. A lot of people, when they get older, they might have a significant qualified accounts, meaning accounts that have have not been taxed yet, such as IRA accounts, 401Ks, 403Bs, all of those can become IRAs. If you have these accounts and you're older, uh, you might not be taking money out. Well, the IRS can't tax you on that money until you take it out. So Congress passed rules saying that uh, you are required to volunteer some tax every year based upon the balance of all of your qualified account balances.
1: And Brian, you've got a chapter in your book, Does Congress Really Hate Old People? It seems that they do because, you know, the deadline is January 1st, but if you forget and you go, oh my gosh, it's January 2nd, I forgot to take my RMDs, it's only one day late, can I still do that? No, you can't do
2: it. There's no grace period whatsoever. And the reason I I phrased that, uh, does Congress hate old people, Uh, is because if you look at some of the penalties that are out there, you know there might be 10% penalties for certain things or Penalty for late payment at 6% a year, or you know, maybe there, there's all these different penalties, but I think the worst penalty in the tax code, or one of the very worst penalties, is one of them that's a 50% penalty. Oh, wow. And the example would be yeah, you got a 98 a year old who was a day late uh, moving $100,000 from her IRA to her normal account. And by being a day late, her ta- her penalty rate is 50%, percent five oh. So she got a 50% penalty on top of having to still do it and pay the income tax on that too. So basically, uh, the IRS confiscates m- essentially most of that money. <laughs> so I'm like, why in the world would you assess a 50% penalty on something that only applies to the oldest people of our population? <laughs> I. I never got my head around that. So that's why I coined it, uh, termed it, uh, does Congress hate old people?
1: Yeah, I think they do. But Brian, it's little old Aunt Gladys. I mean, she bakes cookies for us, uh, you know, all year long and makes a cake for us during the holiday season. I guess there's really no mercy. I mean, I guess not. <laughs> uh, hopefully she has a financial
2: advisors paying attention yeah. to that. I mean, we do with our clients. We know their birthdays. So we know that we have to figure that out. And and one of the things about RMDs is, which makes it tough, Let's say that we're investing money for somebody. They have a million dollars in their qualified account, and they you know, they're seventy-two. And generally, uh, the B start at, you know, between three and four percent. I'll just call it three and a half percent, just around it here. Mm-hmm. And so, if they had a million dollars, they would have to move thirty-five thousand dollars out. And so, we might be able to know. Okay, you need to move thirty-five thousand. But what if they have accounts elsewhere? That we don't know about, that they're managing themselves or, or they're at Edward Jones or some, some other place. I, we have to look at all the account balances at the beginning of the year to apply the percentage to, and they have to take that money out. Now, they don't have to take it out of every single account that they have. So let's say they had $2 million scattered about. They can take that, in this case, $70,000 out anywhere. They can take it all out of one account. They can take it equally out of all accounts. It doesn't matter as long as they move
1: that during the tax year to avoid the penalty. So once again, if you do not take the distribution by December 31st, even if you're one day late, the penalty 50% of the distribution amount, ouch. Brian, it seems to me that if you're taking RMDs and then you're investing them elsewhere, it's sort of like taking money out of the left pocket, putting it into the right pocket.
2: Well, it is to a degree. It's it's like, uh, let's say I had a $100 bills in my left pocket and they say, you need to do an RMD. Okay, I got to move it from one of my accounts to the other account. Well, when you take the money out of the 100 bills out of your left pocket, uh, and you're putting them in the right pocket, the IRS kind of grabs some of that from you. They midstream, they might, right there. Yeah, in the middle. midstream. They <laughs> might grab 25 of those bills. You go, Oh, I only have 75 in my right. So I moved 100 from my left pocket, but I only landed 75 of, in my right pocket. That's kind of what it is. Uh, so that's that, that
1: transfer is a taxable event. So the IRS is, is going to grab some of that, uh, on its journey. So when you do take those RMDs, if you do not need the money, what are some examples of things that you might do with that RMD in order for it to not be lazy money, sitting there doing nothing, in order for it to you know, go to work for you some more?
2: Yeah, a couple of things on that. A lot of people go, oh, my gosh, RMD is the worst thing ever. No, it's not a terrible thing. Most people need to take money out of their retirement accounts for living expenses. So if you're already taking money out anyway, well, gee, I, was, I had a million dollars and I've been taking 3000 a month out of my account. What's my RMD? Well, you probably already covered it by that. And maybe you're a little bit short. Maybe you're 80 years old, and and you need to take you know I don't know five or six percent out. Uh, it those percentages keep going up. They even have the table. I think it goes to like 115 or mm-hmm. something like that. And once you get to be 100 years old, you know it's close to half every year. You got to take out, and it's kind of silly. But they, they they want it. They want you to take it all out. But you know it's it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. But if if you really really don't need the money. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you can invest it. One of the things I did want to mention, though, is that you can donate to a charity directly your RMD amount. And then that doesn't, you know, then you get a tax advantage for that. The charity gets to receive the whole amount on that. So that's one of the things you, you may want to talk to your financial advisor, well, your CPA about
1: we're talking about required minimum distributions or RMDs with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. Brian, we occasionally get people asking us questions here. They email them to us at madronafinancial.com, or they use that website to get the questions. And we had a question from a fellow last week about required minimum distributions, and he said that his father died back in April, and he and his sister had inherited the accounts there, and his father was 72, did not take his his RMD, so his question to you was, are he and his sister liable for taking those RMDs?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of nuances with inheritances and so forth and, and so in, in this case uh, I believe the answer would be yes and that they would be required to do that and so this is kind of like everything we talk about on here, we're just kind of brushing the surface of these, these topics. There's a lot of complicated rules about, gee, the year I turn 72, do I have to take it that year? Or can I wait till the next year? Yeah, there's there's all these interesting nuances to that so uh, talk to your CPA or or financial advisor about that. But uh, certainly make sure that uh, those are done. You know, there's a lot of special rules on inherited IRAs and, and whether it's a spouse inheriting it or the next generation, how quickly you have to liquidate those monies out of there, were the RMDs taken in time for the, the year that you're in. And, you know, how can RMDs be taken? I mean, some people, you know, like to take monthly amounts. Some people wait till near the end of the year so they can keep it invested in the IRA for the longest time possible don't wait too long though and that's the one thing i do Mm -hmm. want to point out don't wait until december 28th and go oh yeah I i think i'll call my advisor and get that money out well it might take a week to move it And uh, you're going to be late and you're going to pay that 50 percent penalty. So do yourself a favor, do your advisor a favor and make that call with plenty of time before the end of the, the month.
1: So the deadline is December 31st. But as you said, I mean, probably you should do it at least two weeks in advance. Is there ever a time that it's too early to take an RMD in the year?
2: Well, I would I would correct that. I do not want to get a call in December at all. Okay, <laughs> okay, <laughs> not two weeks, Jeff. I don't want to. Don't call us in December on that one. That should have been accomplished at least by November. Okay, and so a lot of it has to do with your cash flow. I mean, yeah. uh, needs and you know, I've for most people, I would think taking a monthly amount makes sense anyway because right. that's, they can budget around that rather than a lump sum. But uh, certainly, a lot of my folks say they, they have plenty of money and and they don't need it and they don't spend it and that's the one thing i keep running into it over and over so many of my clients have done really well because they're thrifty and they're motivated and they, they they have a really good portfolio lots of money they don't spend their money so they don't spend their rmds and they don't even want the money and and they don't know what to do with the money and they don't want to leave it all their kids and you know it's this uh, ongoing uh, conundrum they have as to gee i have lots of money what but I can't make myself spend it. And I said, why don't you fly first class? Oh, no, I'd never do that. But you've got $10 million in the bank. Yeah, yeah, I, I would never do that. That's too expensive. Well, not not for you. It isn't, you know, it's, it's a tough thing for a lot of folks once they get to that
1: point. Old habits hard to break. If yes. you've been thrifty your entire life, you're going to be thrifty the rest of your life too. And I guess there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to hold on to your money, pass it on to someone else. That's one thing. Maybe pass it on to a charity, some philanthropic cause. That is totally up to you. Talking about RMDs with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. Brian, so you've taken your RMD and you're looking to reinvest it. I mean, that's something a lot of people don't like.
2: Yeah, they don't like it because they're in something in their IRA account. They like what they have, maybe. They like their portfolio and they have to sell it to convert it to cash so they can move it. And a lot of people are like, well, I didn't want to sell that. And one thing I remind them, well, we can always buy it back in the other account, mm-hmm. minus the taxes that you're paying. But certain circumstances don't allow you to do that. There might have been minimum investment amounts, and it's not enough to, to click that off anymore. But I, I would look at, let's look at the positive side of moving money. Any time that we're reviewing our accounts can be a time to look at what we have and say, is this where I want to be? Is this what I want my accounts to look like, my diversification look like, allocations and so forth? So I think it can be a good thing that, that if we're moving money, it's again, a, an opportunity to say, where do I wanna be at this point in my life going forward? And you might look at your thing and go, well, I didn't wanna move that money, but gee, I just noticed that I'm really heavy in X, Y, Z, and I don't think I really like to be in that anymore. Maybe I should take this opportunity to not only move money, but reposition things in both my IRA accounts and my non-IRA accounts. So I, I just wanted to point that out as as something you might uh, look forward to as you're analyzing your RMDs.
1: Our discussion this segment has been about RMD's required minimum distributions. If you've got questions, again, 844-MADRONA on that topic. You can also send us your questions from madronafinancial.com. And while you're there, check out all the useful guides and news you can use at madronafinancial.com. Again, if you're looking to hire a new financial advisor, no cost no obligation for that. If you have $500,000 or more, 844-MADRONA or madronafinancial.com. Time for break, Brian. We come back on our program today. We'll be asking the question, should you pay off your mortgage? We'll talk about that and more when Growing Your Wealth continues after this.
0: If you have an annuity or are thinking about getting an annuity, do not buy one until you talk to the financial professionals at Madrona Financial Services. You may qualify for an upfront bonus and even guaranteed income growth. While some annuities can help you protect your assets in a volatile market, having the wrong one could cost you thousands. Don't let this happen to you. Call the professionals at Madrona Financial Services now for a no-obligation financial review at 1-844-MADRONA. That's 1-844-MADRONA. Or visit online at
1: madronafinancial.com. At Madrona Financial Services, we believe you should never worry about running out of money in retirement. Retirement should be spent doing what you love with the people you love. The CPAs and financial advisors at Madrona Financial Services want you to know that with proper financial planning, that's exactly what you can have. Their goal is to do everything they can to help you achieve a financially secure future. They have many tools and ways to help you reach your retirement goals, from guaranteed lifetime income streams and protection against market losses to alternative real estate investments and strategies to minimize your taxes. With the Madrona Bundle of Services, they have everything you'll need to plan for retirement under one roof. So schedule your complimentary meeting today and get back to enjoying your retirement. Call 844-MADRONA or visit madronafinancial.com. They'll arrange a meeting at one of their three convenient locations or conduct a virtual meeting if that works better for you. Take control of your financial future at madronafinancial.com. Do you ever worry if your CPA and financial
0: advisor are on the same page? You won't have to if you call Madrona Financial Services at 844-MADRONA or visit them at madronafinancial.com. Now, back to
2: Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services
1: and Bauer Evans CPAs. And this segment, we're going to be talking about should you pay off your mortgage? And Brian, that is a common question that we get here at Madrona Financial. A lot of people have some very, very strong opinions about whether or not they should have a mortgage. I mean, a lot of people believe that they need to keep the mortgage for income tax purposes, but that may not be the case, right?
2: Yeah, that's often a misnomer. There, there can be really good reasons to pay off a mortgage and maybe some reasons not to pay off a mortgage. But often when it, when somebody says, well, I need to have a mortgage, some people actually have Places that are paid off and they come to me and they say, you know, I, I really need to go out and get a mortgage. I said, well, why? Well, I need the, the tax deduction. I said, well well that's okay that's probably not actually accurate because uh, we have something called the standard deduction right and that's twenty four thousand dollars uh for a lot of people and and so if we uh you know you might have with your property taxes and and other itemized deductions uh probably the first hundred fifty thousand to two hundred thousand just approximately of your mortgage really don't do you any good. You're going to get that deduction anyway in the standard deduction, so it's it's kind of pointless. The first time you don't get any additional tax deduction. Somebody with no mortgage and somebody with a hundred fifty thousand dollar mortgage. Both will be taking the standard deduction generally. And so neither gets a that person with a mortgage does not have an advantage over the person with without one. And they're saying, you mean I spent all that money on interest and I don't even get a dime back extra from the IRS? I'm like, that's right. <laughs> so in that case, uh, I've seen a lot of people that have hundred hundred fifty thousand $150,000 mortgages say, I, I don't want to pay it off because of taxes. And I, I got to correct them and say, it's, it's not really doing you any good.
1: So, Brian, if you've got a mortgage, what is the reason or what is the main reason that you can think of why you would not want to pay off that mortgage with that extra money you've got lying around?
2: Uh, A great reason is that you believe that you can do better than your mortgage rate, uh, that you can invest it at a higher rate of return than what you're paying on the mortgage. So maybe your mortgage is at 3% and you say, you know... I've had this mortgage and I took that money and instead of I had the money and I could have paid off the mortgage, but instead I bought stocks with half of it and put the other half of my business and the stocks have been going up you know, 7% a year on average and I'm only paying three and my business has been flourishing and, and my rate of return is very, very high on that and I'm way better off having taken that money in something called arbitrage where you're paying less than what you're earning on something so you get the difference. And so uh, it's a way to, to leverage yourself and into things like that. Now, if you don't believe that you know you're going to get a higher return or don't want to take that risk and you wouldn't want to do this, but if you're a strong believer that you can use that money and have a much
1: higher return than the interest you're paying, that's why you probably wouldn't want to pay off a mortgage. And Brian, you know, there are non-financial decisions here that we make all the time. It really has to do with your personal comfort situation. I mean, do you meet people who say, you know, I just it may be a little bit, I'm going to be taking money from here. I realize it doesn't make financial sense, but I've just got to have a paid off house because I'll sleep better at night.
2: Absolutely. And I would even encourage somebody. I'd say, well, what could you do with that on the outside? They say, well, I can make 15%. But you know what, Brian? I can't sleep at night knowing I owe somebody money. Yeah. I'm like, well, then don't worry about the 15%. <laughs> pay off the mortgage and, and get some a good night's rest, you know? So I think it's, for a lot of people, it's very
1: psychologically uh,
2: important for them to have their house
1: paid off. So it's a personal decision whether or not you want to pay off your mortgage. Again, Brian, you know, we get so many questions here at our website. And we got one from a gentleman named Bill who says he owes $200,000 on his house. And they've got 25 years to go on the mortgage. The house is worth $700,000. He financed it to make the payments as low as possible, and he's paying extra on the principal each month. But he has talked to some advisors who suggested to him to pay off that house even if he takes money from his 401k and has got to pay the taxes. He says, I would think I'd be better off keeping the money invested. They don't have any other debt. What are your thoughts? well yeah there 's that, and i I thought you were going to go
2: the other way because i 've heard a lot of advisors say, "Oh, uh, take your paid off house, go out and leverage that, invest in the market, and earn more." And so that's that's usually what I hear and I don't think either of these examples is is something I would recommend that they do, but it depends on the person, of course now, I really believe that another nuance of this is is I look at your your home mortgage as your security asset you know or your your home as your security asset, and whether you have a mortgage or not doesn't change any appreciation on it, so that's that's another comment i wanted to make but uh, a lot of people want to have their principal residence paid off now with their rental houses that's a different thing rental house debt i don't really think of as debt it's just part of the investment equation cuz you can always you know let's say you owe 200,000 on that mortgage and your house is worth 700,000 and you just go i can't stand this $200,000 debt it's driving me crazy well then sell the house and, and clear 500 grand oh yeah So I always, you know, if you have equity in something, it's okay to carry that, especially as an investment asset, because we always know we can sell it. But you're not going to make that same decision with your principal residence because you need a place to live. And so that's the one that you're probably going to talk about paying off first, even though it might be the lowest interest rate of anything you
1: have. Brian, some advisors say that there's good debt and bad debt. Can you define what's good debt and bad debt insofar as our mortgage discussion? Yeah,
2: I, I can. Now, uh, certainly, uh, there's some people that do financial advisory nationally, and one in particular that says, you know, cut up all your credit cards, don't take on any debt. And and so that's the big push. And And generally speaking, there's a lot of wisdom in, in that However, I, I have a little bit of different take on that. Uh, growing up uh, the way I did and, and starting out in business, if I never took any debt, I'd still be renting an apartment and sure. working for somebody else. Yep. I would not have bought anything because there's no way I would have kept up with the increase in prices. You know, My first house I bought was in Kirkland. I was able to qualify for the 3% first-time homebuyer down payment. I borrowed the 3% from my dad and paid him interest on it because mm-hmm. I didn't have any money in the bank because I was just starting out. So had I not done that, I wouldn't have been able to buy a house in a Tri-Level in Kirkland for $86,000 that went up 50% the first three years because now if I'd put that off, now I got to come up with uh, $87,000 plus another 50% (laughs) and I never would have caught up because now that same house is probably about a million dollars. I never would have been able to buy a house without debt. That is good debt. Uh, I never would have bought... My business and the multiple businesses I bought after that as we grew the company unless I took on debt because I never had the money just to pay it off up front. And so I, not, I would not have gotten ahead had I not had good debt. Now, bad debt to me is along the way, I did not drive a nice car You know, I remember having a mustard colored dented (laughs) 72 Dotson station wagon while I was working as a CPA (laughs) in downtown Bellevue. And everybody that wanted to actually have a date was driving a Beamer. And I was driving that crappy car, but I had a house and they were living in apartments. And so, uh, you know, bad debt is something that's not going to go up in value or you you maybe made some miscalculations. You, You borrowed money, you put it into something, and it wasn't a good something to put it into. Okay. That can happen, too. But I think it's important to distinguish between good debt and bad debt. Debt by itself is not a bad thing if the offsetting asset is appreciating a much higher rate than what you're paying in
1: interest on that debt. So bad debt is uh, something that doesn't get worth more. And what I mean by that or you know, meals eaten long ago. You put those on a credit card and, you know, that uh, $50 <laughs> steak has ended, ended up costing you $150 because you financed it over a period of years at 29.99%. Generally, anything with four wheels doesn't go up in value either, with the exception of a 63 Corvette split window that you bought below market, you know. But that's very, very rare. Or, you know, anything that goes in the water, a boat, generally not a good investment. But good debt would be something that does appreciate. You go into debt to buy a home because it does appreciate. Does it ever make sense to go into debt to invest that money? I guess that's called arbitrage.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, we do that certainly with real estate. That's that's a common thing, and we do it with life insurance often, a premium finance life insurance. You take on debt to buy more of the real estate or more of the life insurance because your rate of return, you believe, will be higher than the interest rate you're paying. Now, a lot of people would propose doing that with the stock market, I think, where something starts getting very volatile. That's a little tougher call. You know, what if that stock is your own business? Like in my case, would I take on debt? Yes, I absolutely have taken on debt over the years to expand my business because I I believed in that and I thought that was a good place. It turned out being right about that. So, yes, you can absolutely go into debt to invest in something you understand and and know. Uh, Be cautious, though, if you're doing margin debt and investing in the stock market because, as we know, the stock market can be very volatile and if this isn't extra play money and you're you're dealing with your your need money that can be that can go the wrong direction it has for for a lot of people at various times in the past so uh, make sure you're you're careful about taking on that kind of debt
1: we've been talking about whether or not you should pay off your mortgage and good and bad debt here on growing Your wealth once again questions about anything that we've talked about today 844 madrona the number to call or madronafinancial.com is a place that you can go and email us a question and again if you're looking for a complimentary, no-cost, no-obligation financial plan, you have at least $500,000 or more to invest. You're looking to hire a new financial advisor or maybe you don't have a plan, again, you can request your complimentary review at 844-MADRONA, 844-M-A-D-R-O-N-A or madronafinancial.com. Out of time for this week, Brian, I want to thank you for your time. Thank our listeners for listening to us. For Brian Evans, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Grown U well.
0: or diversification guarantees a profit or guarantees the avoidance of loss. Financial planning is an important tool that does not guarantee specific outcomes. If you're aged 59 and a half or older with a 401k plan and still working, stop what you're doing and call Madrona Financial Services at 1-844-MADRONA. There are benefits with age, and this is one of them. At 59 and a half, you're entitled to new opportunities in the investment world that can save you thousands in 401k fees and dramatically reduce your risk of a market correction. Call the team at Madrona Financial Services today for a free financial review at 1-844-MADRONA. That's 1-844-MADRONA. Or visit madronafinancial.com. Thinking about the great outdoors again? Clear Creek RV has you covered. With four Puget Sound locations and 14 of the industry's leading manufacturers, you can order exactly what you want in your next RV, customized and delivered in time for spring camping. Shop Clear Creek RV, Silverdale, Puyallup, Squim, and Chehalis, or clearcreekrv.com. Clear Creek RV. Travel, explore, see it all.